HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. Hey everyone, I'm Marissa Ross. And I'm Adam Ravulis, and we're the hosts of Natural Disasters. It's a podcast about natural wine and shit. Every week we're going to be going through the basics, the ins and outs, and the culture around natural wine, and, you know, other shit that we just decided that we kind of want to talk about, but mostly wine. Yeah, I I mean, have have you had that friend that uh, has shut up to your house with a bottle of wine and gone, this is natural wine. And you're like, I wish I knew a little bit more about that, and was entertained. Or maybe you're the friend that's like, yo, this is some natty wine, and you just want to learn more about said natty wine. This could be a good podcast for you, too. Or maybe you know everything about wine, and you just want to listen to some really entertaining people drink wine and chit-chat. Yeah, we do a lot of that, too. Yeah. Like, for example, um, I went to a Pusha T show recently. That was really fun. That's pretty amazing. It was great, except I was really looking for Kanye to come out, and then he didn't. And even though, you know, I'm still a little mad at him, but I'm, we don't need to get into We don't into need to get into that. Anyways... Wine and shit. Yeah. Join us. Natural Disasters Pod on Heritage. Yes, on Heritage Radio Network. It's the best. We're really excited. (laughs) All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman on her path to success, her struggles, and learn something along the way. Today, I'm interviewing a writer and cocktail connoisseur at the heart of a monumental, and I imagine quite momentary, controversy, whether or not the Aperol Spritz is a heinous drink or a delightful one. We'll talk about this controversy and more with my guest today, Rebecca Pepler, who recently published a fantastic book called Aperitif's Cocktail Hour, The French Way. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So let's just start, because I, I can't avoid this controversy. I can't either. Stirred up out. by your piece in the <laughs> New York Times with, with the title, The Aperol Spritz is a Bad Drink. Uh I don't have a very strong personal opinion, but I seem to be in the minority. <laughs> so when you wrote the piece, tell me like what informed your thoughts about the Aperol Spritz, and then let's talk about the, you know, the results of that <laughs> strong opinion. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
you know, when I was when I was thinking about writing the piece, and I've had I've I've thought of uh, I thought about this a lot in the past few years, um, especially because I've been drinking so many low ABV liqueurs and spirits and all of that fun stuff. And if anybody doesn't know what low ABV is, oh, low what? alcohol by volume. Pardon. Yes. Uh, so any any of these that that I talk about in the book that so there's so many that are French and uh, I live in Paris and so it makes perfect sense that I would be writing something that is uh, French focused for the book. Um, but I did include Campari and Aperol in kind of my history section of the book because they are a part of the conversation um, when you kind of go back to classic aperitif spirits. But it's just you know it's it's something that I think. Uh, the marketing has just done such an incredible job at par- like kind of equating a spritz with the Aperol spritz. And so when you order a spritz, it's immediately this like bright orange, bubbly, really sweet drink. And the spritz itself has a history. It goes way, way back. It's, a, it's named um, from, from the German word spritzen, which is spritz. Um, and it was actually German soldiers that were occupying um, northern Italy weren't really a fan of the wine that they were drinking there. And so they added a spritz or a spray of still water at that point to the wine. And so it's got this incredible history that you can kind of go back on and none of it has to do with Aperol. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of uh, shine a light on that and then also talk about, you know, drink what you want to drink. It's, it's, it's your body, it's your taste buds, it's your palate, it's your choice. Um, but if you're going to make a spritz, make it, make it good, you know, uh, quality bubbles really matter. And I think that a lot of spritzes these days that are just served like, you know, out in fresh air and it's beautiful and it's sunny and everyone's tanned and, you know, like you're, you have a crush on someone and, you know, like you're not really thinking about what you're drinking. They're not pouring great bubbles into these drinks. And so if you elevate that, you're already elevating the drink. And then there's all of these other, if you just want to stay in the category of red bitters, there's all of these other great brands that are doing such good work and not getting recognition because they're kind of getting passed over for a brand that has a lot of name recognition. And so I wanted to kind of throw a bone that way and be like, let's like, let's drink a little bit more responsibly and think about what we're putting in these super fun, low committal uh, drinks. Okay, but instead of you, you threw a bone, but you got attacked by the dogs. I, <laughs> I mean, that's did. actually what happened. I did. Um, why did people just jump on you and uh, tear you to shreds for this particular opinion that, as you say, it just mm. seems so reasonable? And also, what's a better bubble? Just uh, oh yeah. But first, why the dogs? Yeah. Um, you know, drinking a spritz outside in the summer is such an attainable fantasy. And I partake in it all the time. I love it. Um, but I think... Do they think they, they thought you were a snob? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think some, I think some opinions went that way. I think or it was also just like... you really hurt like, their feelings. Like, yeah, this is my drink and you yeah. just insulted my drink. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of anxiety and fear going around right now in the world. And uh, there's a lot of things that we can and should be discussing that are much more uh, important than what we're drinking on a summer afternoon. But sometimes you have to let go of a little bit of that anger and frustration and fear. And we found an outlet here. And I think I wasn't expecting the outlet to be so uh, pointedly personal. But at the same time, I'm, I'm happy to provide a little bit of a space for people to actually have a conversation that feels like it matters in a world that is feeling pretty scary right now. 
So, so here people, we are. people feel like their drink matters a lot, but in fact, you're saying like it's okay. It's it's, it's not that important. And if you want to mm-hmm. take it out on me and my drink, I'm good. And we'll talk about something next week. It's distracting fun. Yeah. And happy to be a part of it. Okay. I need it as well. So an aperitif is something that is a, a transition. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talk about how uh, the aperitif is, you know, the end of the workday in France. And is just before, just even saying these words make, makes me feel on vacation. But mm-hmm. it's, it's bef- before dinner. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to talk about some of the transitions that you've gone through. Because... You were a food stylist and still are. I am. Um, <laughs> and became a writer, which mm-hmm. you were, <laughs> but now <laughs> it's more of your focus. Yeah. And you had lived in Brooklyn and you've moved to Paris and LA and a bit parts unknown since mm-hmm. travel is such a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about transitions in the really big picture. And I think that I want to start with uh, your transition from Brooklyn to Paris, from rooftop to rooftop. Rooftop to rooftop, yes. What what drew you to Paris? I mean, I think it's what draws everyone to Paris, right? It's a, it's a really, it's a beautiful city. It's a such a romantic city, even if you've never visited. There's a fantasy that kind of goes right along with it. And uh, I was ready for it. I was ready for a change. I, I had moved to New York from Wisconsin, where I was born and raised, and went to university. And then um, was kind of looking at 10 years in New York and realizing, as a food stylist also, more than a writer, even though I studied journalism in college and really um, my passion is writing, uh, I kind of felt like I was going to get stuck if I stayed. And I was single and, you know, unattached to really anything. And so I was like, I'm just going to, like, I'm going to split my time because I can work from anywhere, especially as a writer. And the, it was, it was actually between New York or between LA and Paris. Um, and I kind of decided on Paris because I can, you can always move to LA. It's so much closer, right? Well, (laughs) technically it's like the same flight time, which is kind of crazy. But, um, but yeah, I just, I decided that Paris, Paris was the right move. Um, I was ready for a challenge. I wanted to learn a new language. I, I wanted to explore who I was in a bigger way, and it felt like I wasn't able to do that as fully as I needed to in New York. And But love was a part of the equation. Paris <clears throat> has love in the air, it but does. you found love in Paris. Can you tell me about that? I, I did, yeah. So I, I decided to go for six weeks to see if Paris was the right place for me. Um, and I, I decided about four and a half weeks in that it was and that, you know, in the next year I was going to like figure out the visa stuff and kind of move. And then I, uh, walked into a perfume shop and fell instantly in love with a woman, uh, which was also a, a, a parallel surprise to me since I had, uh, originally, or, you know, always kind of thought I was straight. Uh, and so kind of fast forward six weeks later, I was, I was back in, in, New York and had a one-way ticket back to Paris and kind of started the visa process a lot faster than I expected to. So love was it 
is like the, your speed starter. It, it yeah. was your bubbles to get the reaction it was, going. It was. It was. A, it was more of a. It was more of a crush than love at that point. We <laughs> broke up very quickly after I got there. Um, but I, I dug in my heels and stayed, and, and very very happy that I did. But what did that teach you about yourself? Like in terms of you know moving on a dime, mm-hmm. and then you know digging your heels in, mm-hmm. and uh, you know having revelations about your sexuality. Like what? Um, that just seems like there would have been a lot going on then. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I've always been like this. I've jumped, I jump into big things really easily. They don't scare me at all. It's the little things that actually give me more anxiety. Uh, but, but I have no qualms about like when I moved to New York, I made the decision while sitting on my mom's couch and I was like, I'm doing this. I'm going to go to pastry school in New York. And she was like, great, wonderful. How can I, how can I help you fill out that application that you're looking at? Um, and so all the big, big decisions that I've made in my life have been very, I wouldn't say spontaneous, but uh, not fully thought out. And I think that's what has made them actually happen. Because if I overthink it, it, it actually doesn't happen. What do you think gives you the freedom within yourself to do that? Oh, um, I think it's a, it's a deeply rooted belief in, in myself. And that was instilled, you know, to give my mom a, another shout out that was, that was deeply instilled by her. She, uh, she made me believe from a very young age that I, that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And, and here I am doing it. And, um, what about the, the smaller things that give you more anxiety? Like what type of thing, you know, can cripple you or hold you back? And you're like, come on, I moved to Paris for yeah. God's sake. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. And I didn't know the language. I mean, you know, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And like, that seems big, but what small things would... Yeah, when I like look through all of that, when I go back, I'm like, who, what, what were you thinking exactly? I can talk to my younger self and be like, that was actually a pretty bold, maybe stupid move. Um, oh my gosh, there's so many things. As a writer, I mean, I rewrite myself over and over and over again. I can stress over one sentence or one paragraph or one, one thing that I, that I need to dig uh, deeper into the history. And I think that comes from the journalism background. Uh, that you see in aperitif um, in the in the front section of the book, but I mean like you know social interactions like um, texting people that I have crushes on like that kind of thing like I I definitely overthink those those sides of things much more than big life decisions that are actually going to impact me in a in a larger way. So you just you have an inner editor that stops you on the smaller things, but that Absolutely. editor's totally on vacation when it comes to... Oh, yeah. To- she has her out-of-office on when I, when I make a big decision <laughs> or I come up with anything that might, uh, that might shift my life in a very big, dramatic way. It's just out the door. And let's talk for a minute about the transition from journalism to food stylist mm. to combining the two, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what drew you to journalism? You know, I always wanted to write, um, and I knew, I did news editorial focus in university, but um, I knew that I wanted to focus less on hard breaking news and more on on food, to be perfectly honest. Um, But I didn't really know how to combine those two things in the city that I was living in at the time. And so I moved to New York to go to pastry school and kind of get a base understanding and uh, connections in in a bigger way. bigger pool for uh, food writing. And so I always knew I wanted to write about food, but it took a while for them to kind of all come together. And then when I was in pastry school, I had an internship on a, a food TV show and ended up, you know, the executive producer kind of got behind me and she brought me on to her next project. And then when they were looking for a food stylist, she was like, 
you know, I think you'd be really good at this. I know you don't have any experience, but like, why don't we do it? I don't have a budget to hire anybody and you can do your researcher role on the side and, uh, and style these things. And so even that, it was just like, I jumped two feet in. I knew the great part of it was, and, and I'm so grateful to Lauren for this is that she, um, who was that? Lauren Dean. I love Lauren Dean. Um, she's amazing. Hi Lauren Dean. Hi Lauren. <laughs> I love you. Thank you for everything. Um, she, she let me ask questions. She let me mess things up. There are like, you know, horror stories that I'm sure she tells still. Um, what is, I what, tell me tell. one. I want to know. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't even know if she knows this and this is outing me so much, but, um, the first time I ever poached an egg was for camera on a food network show. <laughs> I had amazing. no idea what I was doing. YouTube is like, the best thing that's ever been invented in the entire world. I was on an electric stove in the back, like didn't have an assistant, had no idea what I was doing and was like swirling the water, trying to figure out how to make it happen. And like, fortunately it looked, it looked great. Um, but that was, that could have been disaster. That could have been bad. Yeah. And that was the time where I didn't tell anyone that I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, no, I can figure this out. Like I, like you can figure out how to poach in it, Uh but they don't teach you that in pastry school. (laughs) Like, I know how to, like, I know how to triple fold croissant. Like, I know, I know how to make everything else, but like poaching an egg. But now I can do it, you know, weekday poached eggs are my specialty, so. That's a really scary way to learn, I have to say. (laughs) I can imagine myself back there going, like, is this going to work? Truly, truly. I'm sure that at the time I was texting somebody frantically at the same time. (laughs) But um, in my head, I was just like very focused. So you got this experience. It mm-hmm. sounds like it was an unpaid, um, unpaid working as a food stylist. Uh, so that was actually paid when I was when I was an intern. It was unpaid while I was in school, and then when I graduated, I was working for for Lauren. It was low paid. I was uh-huh. a you know an entry level researcher for a for a food TV show. So the pay matches that level. Um, but yeah, I just it was great. It was the, it, the payment was in the experience itself. I'm very grateful for it. And. And you became a food stylist, which wasn't yeah. what you expected to do. I had no idea it was a job. That's one of the things I love about this show, like introducing people they, to things that they don't even know is a job. Oh, yeah. So will you describe what a food stylist does? Yeah. So uh, in like very, very easy terms, a food stylist makes food pretty for camera. And so that's the that's like the the fancy part of it. It's like the person with the tweezers and the spray bottles and all the little like tools and gadgets and glues. Um, but actually what a food stylist does is they prep for everything. They do all the shop, they schlep all over the city. I mean, when I was doing it in New York, I was like just covered in tote bags all the time. <laughs> you're like a looking, tote bag tree, right? a walking tote bag tree. Right. And when you're working, especially for editorial work, um, everything is so far out in advance that you're looking for strawberries and it's January and you need a turkey and it's July. And so, um, so food stylist makes food pretty for camera, but the, the behind the scenes work is actually the like bulk of the work. And you're continuing to do it, but mm-hmm. you also pulled back from it. I did. I did. I I really was missing flexing the part of my mind that was um, tied to writing and researching. And so I needed to kind of shift perspective. And I still, I love food styling. I still do it. it um, I styled my book, actually. It was so much fun. Um, the photographer, Joanne Pye, was like the best to work with ever. She made my life very easy. Uh, but, but I needed, I needed something that felt more intellectual, um, on a more regular basis. It's also, I mean, it's quite the hustle. 
Yeah. I guess both sides are a hustle. But, yes, but different the, hustles. But the walking Christmas tree thing is, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just like... It's a physical, it's physical. hustle. It's a physical yeah. as well as like, where's my next gig coming from? Exactly. Oh, yeah. And that's the stress kind of, of any freelancer, right? Like that doesn't right. go away whether you're a writer or a food stylist or, a, you know, a novelist or any of these. Any, I mean, I guess you can be a freelancer in anything now. That's true. Um, but yeah. A gig economy. But is yeah. there is there uh, something that you think is essential to the personality of the food stylist? Oh, um, yes. Uh, organization. Yeah, I was I was very organized. You can ask any of the photographers or the um, video videographers that I worked with. I really love Excel, lots of spreadsheets. I organize everything. I know when I'm shopping for specific things and make sure that they look good. Uh, I like to be able to, if there's a prop stylist that I'm working with, kind of go through everything and have those all lined up. And so, because when you're on set, everything takes longer than it's supposed to. And I try to kind of limit my... Uh, my adding to that. So. <laughs> right. The, right. A well-prepped, you know, it's like yes. the mise en place of life. And then... Exactly. The, uh, exactly. What's right ahead of you. So when you were talking about your book in an interview, you said that the images in this book exist in a world in which mm. there are no cis straight white men. You're welcome <coughs> and, and enjoy, which I kind of loved. Thank you. Uh, so I wanted to know, because we were also talking about that moment earlier in the show, when you get to Paris and you're like, oh, I like have this shift in mindset. Mm-hmm. And then looking at this quote and thinking about how it came to pass and how true it was yeah. in your book, I'm wondering like what went into that feeling like it's an important thing? And then yeah. how did it uh, Absolutely. happen? Well, so when I, was, uh, when I was kind of doing the creative direction for the visuals in the book, I really wanted to to reflect um, my my experience in Paris um, slash France uh, with aperitif. I also kind of on parallel tracks wanted the book to look to not look like a classic cocktail book because that's not what it is. I really wanted it to uh, be evocative of the feeling of an aperitif, which is like you were saying, this transitional cusp between day and night. Um, I like to kind of describe like the way French and Americans think about aperitif time is very different. So you can equate it to happy hour or cocktail hour, hence the subtitle of the book. Um, In America, we kind of like celebrate the end of the day, like, ugh, it's over. Like, where is my martini? Which I'm all for (laughs) Um, and probably will be doing today. Uh, But in France and in Europe and European culture with aperitif or aperitivo hour, it's more the celebration of the start of the evening. And uh, there's this like just shift in mindset that I really wanted to put into the photos. Um, and then to go back to your original question, I, I think that especially the spirits world is very uh, male dominated and there's not a lot of women voices slash not a ton of queer voices in it. And I really wanted to focus on those. Um, and so that was in, that was in my decision to kind of uh, include people that aren't being seen as much in this drinks world, um, and uh, that doesn't include cis straight white men. <laughs> so, <laughs> and how did ha, just give us some examples of mm-hmm. how those people were seen who hadn't been seen before? Because we've got a great opportunity to like. Sh- you know, share the point of view and yeah, well, explain that. Exactly. Well, it's great. You know, I mean, the book, like, I, there's obviously a lot of cocktail shots because it is a cocktail book. Um, although we did schlep 
all over the city for it. So there were, I mean, I carried like 12 bottles a day to like the Seine and then the Canal Saint-Martin and we went to the park and then we were up on my balcony and it was just a, we were dragging like terrace tables over to a better, better uh, wall background. Like the cover of the photo is like, we dragged that marble table everywhere. Um, and not to then to speak of the vintage glassware that I was also trying not to break. Um, but I, I have this wonderful community of women and, and queer friends in Paris. And it was such a lovely opportunity for me to reach out and be like, hey, come out. Like, let's, let's go do what we normally do and bring along a photographer. And I might, like, kind of dictate what you're wearing or what your nails look like. But, like, for the most part, it's going to be just, like, a little bit more of a, a family vibe. And it was really nice to kind of bring that. And I think it comes through in the photos and the, in the life that they kind of are really evocative of. Um, They're also really dreamy. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's still, a f- I mean, Paris is a fantastical place in all the all the ways of the, the word. But it but... just showed me that your life there was dreamy. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like, and this is the, the people that populate your dreamscape. Absolutely. And the city, I mean, it makes it very easy. We shot, we shot mostly in Paris. We shot up in Normandy at a friend's house as well. And I really wanted it to not feel, I wanted it to be, feel French and not, Parisian specifically, although it still comes through because Paris is it's just such a part of the French fantasy. And Paris is another character. It is, and a wonderful one in that. I was also interested in um, the notion of masculine and feminine in cocktails. Mm, mm-hmm. So can you tell me, like, what does it mean to have a masculine cocktail? What does it mean to have a feminine cocktail? Or what does that mean to you? Yes, I think that's a subjective uh, answer. Um, but I think... You know, in general, when you think of a feminine cocktail, you're usually thinking of a coupe glass or something that's daintier. Or like something that looks like a boob. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> a breast cocktail, if yeah. you will. Um, maybe bubbly, lower in alcohol, um, which the entire book is. There are no hard spirits in aperitif. Um, in the book, not in, in the culture. Um and then a masculine cocktail is, uh, in general, can be thought of as like more brown spirits, heavy, heartier. Um, and I just wanted to, I didn't want the book, as much as I, as, as we talked about um, excluding cis straight white men from the, from the visual narrative, I also didn't want the book to look overly feminine. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they think of Paris, they kind of feminize Paris, uh, and I really, I wanted it to be a general neutral kind of look and feel. And so when we looked at typeface, when we looked at the kind of uh, colors that we were going to be kind of focusing on, we wanted to be really careful to make sure that they all were were gender neutral as much as they could be. And then even when I was doing like the cocktail, um, one of the cocktails, the Adonis, is one of my favorites in the book, actually. And that... Uh, the photo that kind of runs alongside of that is uh, is of me and my friend Lena, um, and I'm wearing like this like suit coat, and I'm in the back, and I'm leaning on this um, lovely table, and the Adonis is like a stronger drink. It has sherry and vermouth, and it it tastes it tastes like what you would characterize as a masculine drink if we were going there. Um, and I wanted to queer it a little bit. I wanted to be like, yeah, here are two women, and like we're just we're we're trying to create a story within each of these photos because as a food stylist, that's also like part of my job is to craft a story without using words. Um, and so I did that within as many of the images as I could in the book. Um, and that one I think is one of the kind of showcasing ones that really I tried to flip the 
masculine feminine duality on its head. That I, I love the notion of you know being able to visually read the book mm-hmm. as a as a narrative story. Definitely. Which I suppose as a food stylist that's what one tries to do, but mm-hmm. often there's so many other competing narratives. Definitely. That it can get lost. But yeah. in the case of this book, it is a narrative because it's you it's you. Yeah. And the topic is quite narrow. Exactly. Like in, intentionally narrow. And exactly. how did you come up with the notion of doing aperitif as opposed to truly mm. anything you could do in the entire world? I know. Isn't that daunting when you're like, I want to write a book. Then you have every single option available and no ideas come to you. Um, it, it, it was a really uh, natural evolution. It was, I moved to Paris. I wanted to write. I knew I was looking for, for something that would bring my new life into it and all of a sudden I was getting asked out for aperitif from all of these people I was meeting new friends and you know when you're when you're new to a city you're you're kind of always have to be going out and putting on I don't know it's kind of fun to uh to present yourself in the way that you see yourself rather than the way that like when I was in New York or when I am in New York which we are now um I think I have friends that have seen me in the same way for so long and so when I moved to Paris I was like ooh. I get to like show off who I am inside now. Like it's not just this narrative that other people have. Okay, I love that. Wait, I, so, uh, so <laughs> I'm like going around your story um, or on, but, around your question. But I'm going to stop my mm. original question um, for this because I think it's fascinating. Mm. Um, like, who is the Paris you, and what was the expectation of the New York you, and then there's mm. the Wisconsin you. Oh yeah. Oh, that's that is a different me. I mean, they're they're coming together much better now. I mean, in your 30s, I think you start to like kind of they all weave a little bit closer. Um, but yeah, I was trying things on for size, I think, especially like, you know, I'm from in New a, York. In New York, yeah. When I moved from Wisconsin to New York, it was a very big shift in culture. Um, and I was learning who I was. I was in my early 20s. I spent, you know, my my entirety of my 20s here. Um, and so when I was when I was finally in Paris, I was like, oh, who actually am I? And and then you had this like underlying layer not even underlying, quite, quite large masking layer of, uh, who am I as a queer woman? And then who am I as a queer woman, single in a country that I don't speak the language? Uh, but these are like questions that like, I am so privileged to be able to ask and answer. And, um, and so then when I came back to New York, because at that point I was still splitting time between New York and Paris, it was a very, it was very hard to, bring my kind of new found self that I was still like, you know, getting my sea legs on back into a place that everyone knew who I was as a straight woman. Um, How'd that go? You know, New York's wonderful. (laughs) And I have amazing friends here. And it was a very open, it was very open. And I hadn't come out to my, I came out to people that I could trust. And New York is kind of like the people you trust. Trust center. Trust center. Um, and I came out to the industry here and I didn't come out to my family for, for a while after that. And so Wisconsin me was still very much in the closet, but New York and Paris me was out, um, which was, and what was difficult. your, were you, um, afraid of your parents' reaction or family's reaction or uh, family's reaction? I, you know, I did come out to my mom. She came to visit me in New York, uh, mainly because I said, I really need to see you. And, and she came for a weekend, uh, and she knew before I even said anything which I'm like oh mom um, mom shout out number three yeah exactly oh, she's the best man I got I won with her um so her her reaction was 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 a response not a reaction it was it was very loving and accepting and and, and whole 
Um, but I do come from a, uh, a very conservative town, a very conservative family. There's a lot of um, really intense religion in my background. And so the, that coming out was much more uh, tumultuous. And did, is it a tumult you had to live through or did it happen in Wisconsin and you just could like be in Brooklyn or Paris and be like, you guys deal with that. And when you're ready, I'll talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Uh, yes. I came out. Um, I came out in while I was in Paris. I called the family to come out to them. It was uh, just after the Orlando attacks and I didn't feel comfortable keeping my voice silent when so many people had just died from being out and proud. Um, and so I called and it actually went really well and then it went very poorly kind of downhill. But, um, but yes, I was sheltered from it. I was not in, I wasn't living at home. I didn't have to worry about my safety or my, you know, emotional well-being being that close to it. Um, but it did take a while to be able to, uh, to start opening the conversation again. For sure. And was it really hard when you had the two selves? Like you just know there are all these people who love you who really don't know you. Yeah. And then yeah, all these I people think, who love you who really do know you. Yeah. And this thing separate. Yeah. I think that's a, it's a universal truth. I think there's always, always going to be that in anyone's life, especially a, a queer person that hasn't come out or has only selectively come out. Um, but it wasn't easy, but it was what, what needed to happen at the time. And I think it was a, it was a growing moment. But I also love that, you know, you feel all these, yeah. these yous, because we all do have so many us's. We do. Um, no matter who we are, whatever mm-hmm. the shades are, mm-hmm. you know, coming together. And that's, that's such a good feeling. It is. It is. And it's nice when they kind of all start to come together and you're like, oh, this, this is really who I am at, like, the deepest root. And I'm liking it. So... Um, I'll drink to that, but yeah. I'm also going to take a break at that. Um, and when we come back, we're going to go really deep and hard on aperitif because right. I have so much to learn. And I learned so much just from the book, but I learn better in, you know, uh, when someone tells me things. Excellent. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, get ready for some great drink knowledge. Thank you. is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance, a vibrant and supportive community of professional women who work in all areas of the food, beverage, and hospitality worlds, and come together to network, learn, and share their passion. Membership is only open once a year, every spring, so now is the time to join. The deadline is Friday, May 31st. Visit nywca.org for more details. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I'm here today with Rebecca Pepler, and we're talking about drinking, kind of yeah. low ABV, so it's not, <laughs> um, you know, not too heavy, no hard alcohol on this, uh, in this conversation, <laughs> which is something that I appreciate because I've actually gone very alcohol light myself recently. Yes, and I get it. And I'm really enjoying that. I'm not that, I mean, like full disclosure, <laughs> I've never went alcohol 
heavy because I it would just put me to sleep or yeah. <laughs> make me groggy. So, yeah. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about aperitif. And I'm also excited to talk about the fact that apero is a verb. Yeah, isn't that fun? I didn't know. I didn't know <laughs> that. So people. Um, they apero, like you yeah. could dance. Yeah, or, it's like, do you want to go for apero? Do you want to apero avec moi? Like it's a, it's very, yeah, yeah. it can be used in a very different way. Like or than, would you like an apero? It's, it's all these things. Oh, it's like it's yeah. many, I didn't know. It's, yeah, it is. And it was how when you moved to Paris, you got to know people. It is, yeah. Right? So they totally. would invite you for, is that kind of like going on a blind date and people don't want to spend too much time with you? So they invite oh you for an apéro as opposed to like come to dinner? Yes, it's perfect. It's actually, it's low like. Low commitment, low AVB. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. And for, for someone that has like social anxiety, you're like, oh my God, perfect. Okay. I have this like early evening drink that I can either extend because you can you can choose to keep drinking or go to dinner or whatever, but it's like fully within the culture that it's like just the snapshot in time. And so friends will meet for, I mean, as little as 20 minutes for like a quick beer uh, by the canal and then you go on to the rest of your night or you can be like, oh yeah, we're going to like, we're going to apero and then we're going to go to dinner and then like, or we're going to do apero d'entoire, which is just like more aperos and more snacks. Um, <laughs> oh, right. And, mm-hmm. and I think with, uh, in your book, you have both um, the aperitifs, but you yes. also have some really delicious food. Yes. Not a surprise since, um, as we were talking about before, you are at the same time a food stylist, mm-hmm. but it, they always come together, right? Yeah. There's always yeah. a little something to eat with Absolutely. a little something to drink. Absolutely. Some of the recipes in the book are, are larger, um, but for the most part, like if you're, if you're taking aperitif, you're going to have a, a drink and then like some snack next to you, whether it's a big thing or a little thing, like bar nuts or a bag of potato chips or like something to like crunch on. And, like, invite you to drink more and then eat more and drink more. I'm curious because I actually love things that crunch. And oh, some, my God, yes. I like things that crunch and I th- like things that are really creamy. Mm-hmm. Um, the crunch part drives my family crazy because they have, like, oral, like, they're really sensitive to the oral. Oh, yes. I, Sorry, I have had that in my, my life as well. I'm actually going to take a sip of water and make sure that I'm not offending any, anyone <laughs> with that right now. Um, so... I'd love to understand the entire category. Like, there are um, spirits that are appropriate for aperitif. You mm. you um, organized your book around, like, weather and seasons. Yeah. But I think I need to understand the basics before I get to the seasons. Absolutely. We can start with, we can start with one, move on to the next. Thank you. Yes. So, uh, what is the base of an apero? So, uh... So I'm going to back up even more. Oh, really? Great. Yeah, I'm going to get really Take basic. Me back. Yes. So aperitif can be used, as we were saying, as like, it refers to the drink. It refers to the bottle. And so, like we were talking about earlier, Suze. So you can make a drink with Suze, but also you can call the bottle of Suze and aperitif. Just to be clear, so, okay, we were like hanging out, mm-hmm. you know, before the um, audio went on. And I'm like, okay, I, I hate the name Suze. Like, why is something called Suze? Uh, and Suze is, what is it exactly, aside from a woman's name and a river? <laughs> a river in Switzerland. Yeah, Suze is a French aperitif. It's a, it's a spirit-based, and so a lot of aperitifs are fortified, uh, aromatized wines. We can get into that later. Really, good. really getting <laughs> deep here. But this guy is um, grain alcohol rather than wine base. And so the bittering agent, so we'll talk about bittering things in aperitif culture, but the bittering agent is gentian root, which is this like gnarly root that looks 
kind of like something out of Pan's Labyrinth, like really crazy. It's bitter. It's like deeply bitter from root to top. It has beautiful yellow or blue flowers, depending on the variety. And it's, uh, it's grown in the mountainous regions in France and Switzerland. Um, and it's what gives Sue's its bright, bright yellow flavor or color and um, bitter flavor. And so Sue's is one of those that's like on the like deeply bitter spectrum of aperitifs and a little bit more, uh, it's, it's not like intro friendly. Like it's not going to be, <laughs> you, you're not going to want to drink it like alone w- without kind of acclimating your taste buds. Right. But, um, so are you, was what you're saying to me that, uh, aperitifs, they're all, they're all mostly bitter, mostly bitter. And there's the extreme, which would be Sue's. And Suze's then they go to quite like, extreme less bitter yeah there's like uh you know a vermouth is an aperitif and we can go further into vermouths but there's plenty of different types but uh a lot of them can skew sweet if you're talking about sweet vermouth or blanco vermouth uh and then dry vermouth is its own kind of ball game um so they but they still have like a bitter edge to them like vermouth is traditionally bittered with wormwood which is also what you think of when you think of absinthe and the green fairy um, but it's actually just a, it's a, it's a leaf. It's a silvery, um, leaf that's grown in the fields in the South of France. Um, it's deeply bitter also. I've, I've put it in my mouth and been. Spit it out. Yeah. I've been like happy I did it for the experience and like sad for my, for my palate for <laughs> a good day or two. Um, but yeah, so there, so bitter opens your palate. So we think of bitter a lot when we talk about Amaro's because it's like, it, it helps you digest. But it also, the same things that it helps you digest, like it creates saliva and it kind of creates these like um, your body, getting your body ready to like process things. It also opens your body up and gets it ready to like intake. That's a, it's a lovely, better is a lovely thing. It also, you know, alerts you for danger, but that's like a, that's older. Um, and so a lot of aperitifs are uh, fortified wines that are, are infused with a bittering agent in order to give them that like little bit of an edge and open your palate, open your night, open your evening, open your heart. All of these, uh, we go more poetic as we get closer to France. Um, but uh, for the most part, they do have a bitter edge. Although there's a there's a section in the front of the book on uh, vin du naturel, which is like sweet wines. And the French, uh, it's a very historical thing to do. But you can open your meal also or your evening with a really sweet wine. And that will also open your palate and get you ready to kind of like intake the rest of your night. Okay. So the biggest <laughs> picture. We've yeah. got a little bitter edge and we're opening ourselves up. Yep. And... Are there an infinite number of these sort of base spirits? Yeah. So when I was doing research for the book, so we were talking about my background earlier, which is mostly on food. It's not in the spirit side of the industry, um, which was really interesting to me when I pitched this book because as a journalist, I wanted to research and travel. And I got to travel all over France in order to do it. Um, so I wanted to focus on the history of aperitif and go from there. And so there are a ton new that are happening right now, but these base ones, this, you know, Suze, Lillet, all these vermouths that were started like in the 1800s, like were, um, are your kind of basic bar cart aperitif starters. There's one that's called Picom, which is like my favorite can't find it in the states at the moment but you can come to france and smuggle a bottle back you can find it at any friend pre um you can come in when you come in july <laughs> i can come and drink some picon <laughs> exactly we'll have picon beer 
Um, but so so there's a limitless bottle list that you can do. I focus on the very historical ones, and then in the back of the book, I also list a bunch of bottles that I really love. And so what are your favorites that are available here? Okay, let's see. Well, I keep going back to vermouth, um, but vermouth is my favorite right now. I also just did a little holiday in Spain, so I might be like a little biased because it's vermouth central. Um, Are there trends in these? Because, you know, certainly at... mm -hmm all that time in food and wine, like, you know, these spirits, like Amaro, you know, was quiet, 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 and then exploded. Oh my God, yes. uh, where are we in the spirits for aperitifs in, you know, quiet, quiet, quiet to exploded, like people, where interests are? Wow. Yeah, well, at the moment, spritzes. Um, <laughs> and I actually have an Amaro spritz in the, in the New York Times article, which is one of, when I was testing all the recipes for it, I was back in Paris, and that was like the, that was, that was the winner. Um, and a really fun way to kind of introduce a traditionally classic digestive into your uh, the start of your evening. And also something in Italian into a French book. I know. They don't like each other, the French and the Italians. They tolerate each other. Okay. And but it- they, they don't always love. Yeah. Yeah. They're very different mindsets um, culturally and, uh, yeah, in general. So if the Americans are like, oh, my God, thank God my day is over. And the French are like, oh, my God, let's celebrate the evening. What are the Italians? Oh, they're just like partying all the time. (laughs) (laughs) There's no distinction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I worked on a book in Italy a couple years ago, and we did. It was great. uh, With Rolando Baramendi, we got to travel. I know. Autentico is the name of the book. It's fantastic. He's an incredible guy um, and just so smart. Um, But we got to travel all over Italy. And so, I mean, talk about drinking tomorrow in every single place you possibly could. It was like I I brought a few bottles back that I still like. like. There's like a tiny little quarter inch left and I can't give it up. I thought um, one one of the things that was interesting, uh, a point that you made was that aperitifs are great on a budget mm-hmm. and your <clears throat> your drinking in the evening began partly out of budgetary concerns. Absolutely. Right? Like going out is really expensive and now it's really expensive. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. As a visitor coming back to New York, I'm like, oh, can we like, anybody want to throw a dinner party? Like, <laughs> right. Cause I mean, you know? you're talking about $20 cocktails. So truly, um, with these bottles of spirits, they might be an investment mm-hmm. to begin, but you use so little of them. Is that the, Absolutely. the budget idea? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, and they also last longer. And so when you're buying a $20 bottle of wine, you have to drink it within, you know, four Mostly. days. Right. If you, if you want to. Right. Um, but with uh, fortified aromatized wines, which most of these aperitifs are, and then Suze is like a whole other thing that can just live on your bar cart. They still need to be stored like you would wine if you were, if you open it, it's going to start oxidizing. So put it in the fridge. Same with sherries. Um, but they last so much longer because the fortification ups the alcohol content slightly and enough to kind of let it sit a little bit longer. And then they tend to be a little sweeter and that sugar content uh, helps as well. So what do you put in the fridge? Like, do you put vermouth in the fridge? Vermouth, no. sherry, um, anything that's wine-based, beer, B-Y-R-R-H, uh, but also B-E-R. You should probably put that in the fridge at some point. Okay, so um, I've been doing something wrong for so long, and so have my parents, and so have my grandparents. Okay. So I come from a long line of people who have just left their vermouth on the... Oh, of course. Um, Everybody does it. Out. But it's really yeah. good to, like, learn that right here and now. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, like... 
vermouth bottles are so pretty too. I totally get wanting to leave them out. Like you don't, you don't actually want to put them away into a dark, dark fridge, but it is going to allow it to last longer. It's like leaving a bottle on the counter of wine on the counter versus putting it in the fridge. It's going to like give you a couple extra days to drink it. Okay. Yeah. I'm very glad to have, um, have learned that. Yes. You also have really strong opinions about <laughs> everything actually. Yes, I do. Um, Crazy. but entertaining it at home and like the meaning of, of solitude and inviting people in. Ah, yes. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I love, um, I absolutely love to gather people in my home. It's such a treat and a pleasure and, uh, and something that I, I do every Sunday when I'm in Paris, I have people over. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's the introvert side of me that really, kind of nests in my home. Like I spend the whole day, like I get up, I go to the market, I go shopping, I have my whole plan because I'm a food stylist. So like I have it all written down, it's on post-its, they're like stuck on the walls. Um, And then I like, you know, I'll have an aperitif and I'll prep and I'll set my table and I'll get everything ready. And so when people show up, I'm ready for them. The doors can be opened. I can offer them an aperitif and a snack and maybe be finishing a few things in the kitchen, but I really... I like the idea of having this whole time to kind of mentally and and physically prepare for a meal uh, with friends and then be able to take them in and host them rather than people. I know so many people like to like and people, my friends in the beginning would be like, oh, I want to come over and help. Like, what can I do? And I was like, please don't. Like, this is this is so much joy for me to host you. And when I come to your house, like, I would love to just show up with a bottle of wine and be wined and dined for the night. Like that sounds like such a nice uh, gift to be able to give and an easy kind of gift to give. Okay. So how do you make it easy? Cause I also love people ha- in mm-hmm. my uh, home. Uh, and strangely enough at food and wine, you know, cooking was a little bit more of a, a trauma and I made all these mistakes. Of course. Yeah. Um, and now I'm just so much more aggressive with what I cook, which is very relaxing, actually. Oh, yeah. You know, to be less nervous and mm-hmm. more aggressive. Mm-hmm. But I definitely have places where I trip up. Like, I hate making so many dishes. I mean, dirty dishes. I'm ha- And I always <laughs> make so many things to be sure that every allergy is considered, mm-hmm. every possible combination, you know, that someone could have is thought thought through and um I really overdo it I am incapable like I go to somebody's house and I feel like you do I want to be wined and dined and they do they invite me over they put a chicken on the table a salad some cheese and they're like here's dinner I'm like this is awesome like I'm totally happy exactly I'm gonna be fed I'm so happy to be here with you I can't I am characterologically incapable of doing that. But do you do, what version do you do? So I, I, I skew towards chicken version. It you depends do. on the day. You know, it's uh, it really depends. Like I love a good weekend activity and I'll usually one focus of the meal will be more involved. And it's, it's sometimes it's dessert because I absolutely love making dessert and my background pastry, is in pastry. Right. Um, and I don't get to flex those muscles as often as I like to. And so usually there's like some sort of kind of outrageous thing that's happening that no one wants to eat by the end because I've fed them so much food before. Like what? Um, like just like, oh God, layer cakes. You can't make layer cakes when you live alone. Like you have to like, like I, you can, but then like I eat the whole thing. And so like, it's just so nice to make things like that. Um, or just like, you know, like playing with different flavors and shortbreads and cookies and like little things. I really do love if you, 
If you have made a more extravagant main dish to make something very simple for dessert, that's also portable. And so it's like, here's this, and we're wrapping it up in wax paper, and you can take it home with you. You don't have to eat it now. Or you can eat it. Um, And whenever, I guess I want to start from the beginning, but I'll start at the end. Um, My favorite end of a meal is when, like, the dishes are, like, dirty and kind of cleared, but, you know, I don't like people clearing my dishes either. I'm like, don't clean up for me. I've got this. Um, and I just throw a couple bottles of like uh, pastis, amaro, like, you know, cognac, whatever people are going to be wanting to drink at the end of the meal and a bucket of ice and tiny little glasses that you never know what to do with. Just throw those on the table, some cookies or like something sweet to snack on or dates or, you know, anything um, and let people linger. And that's the best part of the night because you've all like you've had your aperitif, your snack, your meal, your wine. And now you're just like digesting and everybody kind of opens up even more. And it's when you actually get into debates. And I think I instilled a kind of rule that if you're going to get up from the table, it's like get up from the table to go to the bathroom, whatever you need to do. But like, please don't clear for me. Don't clean up at the end of the night. That's my job. That's what I've signed up, signed up for. Exactly. And so once I've kind of I created that culture with the group of people that I have in my home. It's just such a incredible evening. Like it just, it doesn't, it feels like it lingers. It doesn't last too long, but it's just like really natural. No one feels stressed. Okay. I um, love that. So, okay. Try so that. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. I've never done that actually. And yeah. also, you know, people are like, I have to go to the babysitter. I have to take a flight tomorrow at 6 a.m. Yeah. And so the oh, link- start your night early. I think that's it. Yeah. I, I got to start early. I love a 6 a.m. dinner. I'm like, come on over. Maybe like, 6 p.m. Yeah. Or 6 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> Well, breakfast you know, for yeah, dinner. Breakfast for dinner. Or dinner for um, breakfast. Exactly. Uh, okay, I want you to teach me something. Teach me something in words that yes. you know and I don't. But you think like, yeah, Danny, actually you should you should know how to do this. So I'm going to oh gosh, all my French speakers are gonna hate me right now. Um, but I have a toast that I'm gonna teach you okay. that I think is it's one that I've been using for years and totally stole it off somebody else. Um, it was a it was a friend of a friend who said it at a at a big dinner, and I remember looking at the person that I was dating at the time and us both being like, "This is it. This is what we're gonna toast." <gasps> what is to. it? So it's may the best of our yesterdays be the worst of our tomorrows. That's good, isn't that okay? Great? May the best of our yesterdays. Be the worst, be the of, worst our of our tomorrows. <sighs> and the dedication in the book is that in French, um, which I don't think I'm going to teach you because I so poorly teach you it, but you can I... take a peek. I'm going to take a peek. And uh, it's it's not something you would ever really say in French. I had to get oh, a true? bunch of my like uh, fluent speakers to, okay. uh, to translate it for me correctly. But. le meilleur... Uh, de nos passés soit le pire de nos lendemains. Exactement. Ah, très Parfait. bien. Okay. So, I love that. Yeah. And last, I always ask uh, to pay it forward. Mm. You know, the show is all about extraordinary women. We don't get to shine a light on talented people enough. Who would you like to pay it forward to today? Oh, I'm going to pay it forward to Blake McKay, who is just the most fantastic publicist but uh she she was my first editor for the the entirety of aperitif and her her thoughtful commentary and notes really shaped the book in a way that i i 
I could never have written it the way that I did without her. And uh, also just a dope publicist at the same time. So paying it And a good friend. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, there's that shout out, Blake. Thank you all for listening to Speaking Broadly. Come on back next week if you like what you heard. Uh, download us, rate us, review us, and come on back. You can find me at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. And where can we find you? Uh, Rebecca Pepler on Instagram. Very oh, easy. Very easy. Okay. And go buy a pair of teeth and make some. And think about that end of the night. Yes. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.